everybody. Welcome to another episode of Friends Talking Nerdy. This is Tim Jasma. And I am Ken the Geek, as Tim insists that I call myself. Uh, as you said before, it's on your Twitter profile. It's my Twitter handle, but, you know, I'm I just I'm fine with just Ken. Well, or people could call me by my in-game name in Elder Scrolls Online, because so I've been answering to that for years, too. Well, it's still Kim the Geek, though. I mean, it, it, if we ever get to the point where we get enough of an audience to where we can start selling merchandise, think about all the Kim the Geek t-shirts. Kim you the know. Geek merch, huh? Yeah, just... Like a little anime character of me going, with a, with a cape, you know, like Supergirl. Okay, all right. You're like Supergirl, bitch. Superwoman. Superwoman. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> You've been watching TV this week. I've been watching TV on Netflix. All right. I've been watching a series. It's called Rain, as in R E I G N, not not the stuff that comes out of the sky constantly nowadays. Is it purple? No, it's not. <laughs> but um, it's a series that was originally on the CW and ended in 2017. But what I like, it's it's historical fiction. Granted, it is it doesn't really stick to history very. The CW very not accurate. What? I know. I know. Um, but I like it a lot. So it's it's basically following um, Mary Queen of Scots and her her reign in France before she goes back to Scotland, and um, the characters. There's lots of strong women characters, and you know how I feel about that. And I love historical fiction. I read a lot of historical fiction. I I love to watch it. I I love shows with people with accents, and crikey, uh, anyway. no, not. <laughs> that's not an accent. That's a parody is what you just did. What? Me? <laughs> that's how everybody in Australia talks. Shrimp on the barbie, yeah. Right? No. I saw it on TV. It's got to be true, right? <laughs> the lead actress who plays Mary, Queen of Scots, her name is Adelaide Kane. And the uh, one of the other main characters is played by a woman by the name of Megan Follows. And she is the, um, uh, the Queen Mother, Queen Catherine. And man... These two, they are at each other's throats, and then they become unlikely allies at, at one point. So far, I'm, I'm. There's four seasons, lots of episodes for each season, like 22 episodes per season. So there's a lot of it to watch. And being a CW show, I think it's safe to assume that everybody is absolutely beautiful. Not everybody, but there are some very well, pretty people. But we're talking uh, probably not ev by not everybody. You mean? Some of the older characters may not be magazine cover, but if they if they showed up at a bar in Nebraska, everybody's going to be fawning all over them. Well, people probably would fawn over them because of their accents. Uh, but there's, you know, there's the common folk. There's a lot of common Oh, the quirky-looking English character actor? He, of course, yeah. There's always, there's always some of those. I believe most of this was filmed, I think, in Canada. Yes. So there's a lot of um, Canadian I think all of, all actors of, and a lot of... It's a lot of British and Canadian actors. Apologize for cutting you off there, but um, yeah, it's uh, CW. All of their um, uh, DC shows for the Arrowverse film in Vancouver, uh, Canada. Not so. Vancouver, well, USA. If, <laughs> well, if that were the case, that'd be pretty cool though if it was filmed here. But you yeah. would see me in the background like, "Hey, Supergirl," <laughs> and then security dragging me away. <laughs> yep, <laughs> yep. <laughs> that stalker Tim is back. <laughs> Get him away! Get him away! <laughs> Get the mace. Uh, anyway, it's um, it's got strong female characters. It's I like it. I I don't know why I like it. I thought at first I wasn't gonna like it because it seemed like really cheesy and like some of the you know they'll be like dancing at like a feast or something and the background music will be like 
um, it'll be um, string versions of popular hits. Like they played, um, oh, what's her name? The one who does the Royals song. Uh, you're asking the wrong person. I know. Honestly. Anyway, uh, Adele. Not Adele. Um, uh, um, Lord, Lady Gaga. Was Lord, who does that Royals song? Okay. Uh, it was Good. popular. It was really popular a few years ago, which is when the show was in production. People have heard my taste. I think the youngest band I listen to is from the '80s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're not much for new music, but then again, I'm not. Casey really Musgraves, much. though. Hey, Casey Musgraves. Okay. She's great. Okay, you and your Casey Musgraves fanboyism. I'm gonna like come home one of these nights, and there's gonna be like a like blow up doll, like looks like Casey Musgraves, in the bed with you, and I'm just gonna be like, what the heck? And you're gonna be like, leave me and Casey alone. You're recreating a Family Guy episode where Peter was at the uh, the bar, and uh, the bartender was gonna throw an old Kathy Ireland uh, beer standy. And he took it home, had an affair with it, but then got angry with it and started shaking it. Then the head fell off, and then he buried it in the backyard. <laughs> I had no idea I was recreating Family Guy. You were recreating a family... You could be a writer on an animated sitcom. Okay, then. Well, lucky me. Um... <laughs> and that, and that all, by the way, happened in the first five minutes of that episode, so... Wow. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess that's all I have to talk about with regards to Rain, now that I've got that weird image in my head well it uh, i mean being that you mentioned it from the cw uh you know your reaction in terms of you know i'm not really gonna like this but then you know guiltily falling in love with it yeah that's my that's been my reaction to the uh arrowverse shows i mean arrow yeah. supergirl i mean supergirl is corny as hell but it owns it 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 it, it relishes in it it bathes in it. it it's just it's in a good way yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure, like, in terms of history, they're really fudging the details. But yeah. they've made some yeah. really strong female characters that are outwitting the men at every opportunity. Which I always appreciate. And that's the beauty of, you know, history as well. Whether it's fictional or non-fictional history. The fact that we can take characters out of history and put them in unique situations. To put them in silly situations. I mean, think... Um, springtime for Hitler and the producers. Or um, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. That, or any episode of Doctor Who, really. Pretty I mean, much, yeah. I mean, that's true. That's true. I mean, it is definitely a guilty pleasure. It's definitely a guilty pleasure type of show. Yeah, it's not MASH, but hey, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm enjoying it. And I think if you like, if you like shows like The Crown or Victoria, you'll probably like Rain. Oh, that's good. I probably won't, because I'll be the first to admit I'm not a fan of costume dramas. Yeah, um, and I love costume dramas, so... Yeah, but, you know, having said that, I... As usual, that is just my opinion. Uh, I, I will stick with it. That does not mean the genre's bad. Blah, blah, blah. You get Oh, I just thought of a movie that I can make you watch if I win our next uh, Battle for State Supremacy. Well, what movie would that be if, theoretically, you happen to win? Gosford Park. It's made. It's a costume drama, in a way. It's more. It's more of a modern costume drama. <laughs> it's set in like it's set after World War One. <laughs> um, it's written by Julian Fellows, who did Downton Abbey. And it's actually it's got a lot of good actors in it. I think you would like it actually. 
I think you would. It's a no. it's a murder mystery, basically. No, I I will do my best to make sure that I will always win. <laughs> um, I you know so Delaware, you better have some kick ass musicians living in that state <laughs> if I ever pick you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna be like Joe Namath before uh, Super Bowl three. I guarantee I will never lose. You're gonna be wearing nylons like Joe Namath. What? He wore pantyhose. He did some co- commercials wearing pantyhose. I mean, good for him, but I don't want that image. <laughs> okay. Joe Namath and pantyhose, it's a thing. Look it up. Hmm. The 70s was a really weird place. Him, Bruce Jenner, hey. <laughs> what can I say? It's true. Yeah. All right. We had a loss in the entertainment world this week. Yeah, we did. We did. Um, Terry Jones, uh, one of the founding members of Monty Python, has sadly passed away. That is sad. Was it uh, old age or something else? Yeah, I mean, from what I read, I believe he did have um, some issues, uh, some health issues, including, I believe, early onset dementia um, Mm -hmm. or something like that. But he was 76, I believe. Yeah, that's not really early onset at 76. But okay, yeah. uh, still, I'm th- yeah, I'm, I'm recalling mean, something I've read hours ago, so it's not yeah, perfect that's, recall. That's that's fine. Um, yeah, but, but yeah, better be fine. Damn it. Dementia is dementia is really sad, and it's really painful to watch someone go through it. And unfortunately, it affects so many older people. Yeah, I last time I remember talking to my grandmother. Um, she has dementia. She's like 95, 96. Oh, wow. Yeah. And <laughs> we grow old in our family. Um, and she, about three separate times during that conversation, talked about how um, another patient um, took a puzzle from her. That's very common for a lot of people with yeah. dementia. Is they, they believe that... That yeah. things are being stolen from them. My... Not only that, but she delivered that news to me each time as if it was the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my uh, great grandmother accused me of theft a couple of times. Yeah, before she passed. Well, my grandmother could be prickly at times as well. I mean, on the one hand, she, you know, what I've, you know, still love about her is the fact that, you know, she always has something artistic going on somewhere i mean she was a mm-hmm. photographer she was you know crocheter she knits um did import does embroidery i mean she she's always doing something creative and you know that's you know inspiring <laughs> you know it is and any anybody who's still doing creative type things at that age is it's pretty amazing yeah and it's actually good for your brain to do things like that like doing a crossword puzzle every day is supposed to be really good for you mentally to help fight off dementia well clash of clans uh that's not the same (laughs) okay well uh terry jones terry Terry jones Jones. yeah i mean long history with monty python um directed uh my one of my favorite movies period uh monty python's life of brian that's a good one yeah you know he's not the messiah he's a very naughty boy i was always partial to the holy grail that was the more commercial film, but uh, Life of Brian for me was important on my um, path to atheism uh, in, in the area <laughs> I grew up with. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it was a conservative side of Michigan, very re- religious, I say with quotations. Um, and just the whole 
religious quandary that you get put in and I you know having the unique perspective of going to different denominations throughout my life so it's it it, it was a very insightful movie more than anything but one thing people don't realize about him is and I'm going to my notes here so if you hear me going off uh, off mic that's why um, the reason um, th- he was a historian you know, the, all the guys in Monty Python went to university. They all got, I believe, PhDs in something. His mm-hmm. was history. And uh, he's put out some really good documentaries. That's what you were talking about um, yesterday. Yeah. Um, I posted one of the documentaries, one of my favorites uh, from him, called The Story of One. It's about the, the history of numbers. It sounds interesting. I think I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah, again, I put it onto our uh, Facebook uh, group. Uh, just do a search for Friends Talking Nerdy. You'll be able to find it there. Um, and also a quick YouTube search. You'll be able to find it yourself, too, if you're you know, too lazy to go that route. Um, but he brings... When he does the documentaries, they are insightful, educationally. You learn a lot by um, his, his presentation. But, you know, his work with Monty Python helps him to be a good presenter of that information mm-hmm. to where you're actually learning and you you know can sense his passion as well and that more than anything for me is going to sell me on whether I like something or not if the people behind it are putting their everything into it you can always tell even if it ends up being a shitty movie of some sort definitely and yeah it makes all the difference when you can tell that the people who are making whatever it is you're watching are really into what they're doing yeah now one thing i found out too i didn't realize and i've never seen the movie period because i'm not a fan of those uh types of fantasy movies but he was the writer on labyrinth oh really mm-hmm. i love labyrinth yeah it's like one of my favorites yeah i mean i have all the respect in the world for jim henson um growing up with the muppets growing up with sesame street and whatnot but his fantasy work um i know as in the late 80s he had I believe they were called like Jim Henson Presents or the Jim Henson Story Hour or something like mm-hmm. that. It was uh, specials on NBC. Um, he would be essentially like the host, like Rod Serling, and it would be like one or two fantasy stories that they would tell. Yeah, I mean, I know a lot of people were into The Dark Crystal, mm-hmm. but I never really liked it. It kind of scared me when I was a kid. Never saw that either. I don't even remember it being advertised. Yeah, I, I saw it and it, it scared me. But I always liked Labyrinth. Mm-hmm. Mainly because I like David Bowie. I've always liked David Bowie. So, But yeah, Labyrinth is a fun movie, I think. Yeah. So, again, sad loss. I mean, he, he you know, thanks to him, anytime I think of a stereotypical English woman, I hear his voice. Uh, you know, well, I didn't vote for you! Ty- type of deal. So... Um, people in England, if they do happen to listen to the show, can, you know, mock me now. Well, I mean, you're you're basically imitating somebody else's mockery, so I wouldn't yeah. be too upset about that. It's I... more lazy than anything on my part. <laughs> oh, we got Phil in the house. Phil yeah. the cat, yep. yes. Anyway, so, sad news there, but, you know, again, he was 76, life was lived, and look at the impact he had. Yes, you can't really ask for much more than that. Yeah. Now, speaking of uh, asking much from life, you were uh, reading a news story. Yes, um, and speaking of, of cats, um, so there's this guy in Oklahoma who goes by the name of Joe Exotic. He owned and ran this, um, what he called an animal sanctuary. 
but it wasn't a true animal sanctuary because he was breeding, buying, and selling tigers without an FDA license. And he was convicted today, well, not convicted, but uh, sentenced today of uh, murder for hire, as well as all of his FDA, um, what do you want to call them, uh, violations. And FDA violations. You so. say he wasn't from from uh, Florida? No, he wasn't. But he <laughs> but all right. So there's this animal sanctuary owner in Florida who'd been trying for years to get him shut down because of all the crappy things he was doing to the animals he was taking care of. Right. Um. Because he was basically claiming to be a sanctuary, but then he was breeding the animals and touring the animals and to like like state fairs and stuff. And that basically does not mean that you're a sanctuary. Sanctuaries, they sterilize their animals. They're there to take care of the animals and to basically care for them until the end of their natural life. They're not in the business of showing the animals or, you know, making money off being a zoo or what have you. Right. What they do is they take care of the animals until the end of their natural lives. And they just, they rescue animals from bad situations. So there was an animal sanctuary in Florida who was trying to get him shut down because of the terrible things he was doing. And so he uh, came up with a murder for hire plot and it turns out an FBI agent working with U.S. Fish and Wildlife was the person he solicited to murder this sanctuary owner. Yeah, I mean, you showed me the picture of the guy's mugshot and he does not look like the brightest uh, bulb in the in the pack. Uh, no, he... he it's a I you know I'll link the the article from the Washington Post on our on our Facebook, and um yeah it's it's a pretty glorious mullet, and neck tattoos, and the works he just he just looks like he just uh, looks card, like a douchebag. He also looks like a card carrying member of the NRA and someone who voted uh, for Republican down the ticket in twenty sixteen. The who general knows? stereotype. Blah, the blah, general blah. stereotype. Anyway. He's not a good man. And in general, it, it gives me a chance to talk about animal sanctuaries versus um, pay for pets type thing. So there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of animal sanctuaries out there. The good ones are the ones that are just caring for the animals until they reach their end of their natural lives. They're not breeding them. They're not showing them. They're not a zoo p per se. Mm -hmm. They're, they're not engaged. Zoos, on the other hand, they're the ones who are engaged in trying to, um, you know, a lot of the work that zoos do has to has to do with um, habitat preservation and breed preservation and things of that nature. And they do breed animals, but it's it's for the greater good rather than for profit. Whereas guys like this Joe Exotic who just got sentenced to 22 years in federal prison he was basically in it for the money and so he was doing things like providing tiger cubs for people to come and have photo opportunities with which is not good for the animals it's it perpetuates the notion of breeding endangered species it encourages inbreeding and then a lot of times when the cubs get to an age where they're unmanageable because they're friggin' wild cats they're tigers the, they end up getting killed usually and then the parts get sold on the black market it reminds me of the sickening video that i saw on twitter um it was these guys at what looked like a bachelor party or just a jock party or you know we got small penis party or whatever and for whatever reason they had a lion 
oh, at the party as well. And then one of the guys put a, a pie in the lion's face. Oh, God. And just... I, that was one time where it would have been great to see that lion go like, fuck this. <laughs> yeah. Well, what it comes down to is the wild cats are not meant to be pets. And a lot of what sanctuaries do are end up... They end up rescuing a lot of large and small cats that people thought they could have as pets. And then they realize, hey, this is a wild cat. It's pissing all over my house. And it's really stinky. And they're... They usually end up declawed, sometimes defanged, in an effort to make them a better pet. And they just end up being miserable, frustrated cats until they get rescued by a sanctuary and allowed to live as wild as they possibly can. There's a couple of really good sanctuaries that I follow on Facebook. One is, they're called Wildcat Sanctuary, and they're in Minnesota. There's another one called Wildcat Ridge Sanctuary, and they're actually here in the Northwest. Nice. And they do a lot of good work. I try to toss them some money when I can. Um, but yeah, it's amazing how many of the, the sort of smaller wildcats, like servals and um, lynx and bobcats, people think that they can make them pets. Or what people some people do is they will breed wild small the smaller wildcats to domestic cats to make cats like the Bengal cat. And granted, Bengals are really pretty, but when they're in their first or second generation of breeding, they are not pets. They are still very wild. They are very hard to to keep as pets because of the fact that they tend to spray. Yeah. They, you know, they're still very wild at heart, and they don't make very good pets. And so a lot of these cat sanctuaries also take in the sort of domesticated cats that people can't handle for whatever reason. And they tend to have more of those than any other cats. And it's crazy. Their websites are, are, you know, lots of pretty pictures. And you're just like, oh, they're so pretty. I want to have one. No, you don't want to have one. No, stick stick to going to the Humane Society and adopting a domestic cat. There are plenty of domestic cats that make excellent pets. And, and also take the time to adopt an older cat or an older dog, an older animal that doesn't necessarily get the first looks of people that come in and you know take a look at it because those are going to be the first ones to die and you know like my cat phil 12 peach is 10 yeah peach is 10 and you know just because they happen to be that age does not make them bad you know and then you'll you'll be like oh but i'll get attached and then they'll pass away I adopted my, my cat Boris when he was, they approximated his age at 10 because he was a stray. Mm-hmm. I had him for 11 years. That's a long time to have a pet, regardless of the age that you got them at. Yeah. 11 years. So that were great years, and I do not regret adopting a senior pet ever. And... Senior pets are great. I mean, we're kind of getting off topic, but at the same time, I'm very much pro adopting animals of, of any age yeah, yeah, yeah. from a shelter um but yeah definitely i definitely have a predilection for adopting older cats just because by that time you know what their personality is gonna be and dopey right phil yeah okay. like like phil phil's just a kind of happy dope hi likes to get yeah exactly <laughs> that would be voice. his voice yeah <laughs> hi i'm phil no but yeah he's kind of dopey and he's happy but he's he's he loves to snuggle He's a good cuddler. But the he, fucker um, bites, bitch. He, he does like, well, he nibbles. He gives love nibbles. Yeah, but, but still it hurts. 
Like when he bit my nose, little fucker. And he likes to get into the garbage if you don't close it tightly. <laughs> he likes to forage, and that probably comes from him being a stray. Yeah. But uh, Peach is a bit more prickly. She was returned to the shelter a couple of times. Yeah. But I brought her home, and I haven't returned her. But if I can get to the point to where I can pet her. Yeah. It just Tim's can, Tim can pet her now. I'm surprised, actually. <laughs> I figured it would happen at some point. I didn't happen. I didn't think it would happen so quickly. Well. <laughs> I was going to think of a joke, but I'll be nice and not say <laughs> Um I shouldn't. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, yeah, if you want to look into more about animal sanctuaries, go for it. But if you are traveling and you have an opportunity to, like, have, like, a picture opportunity with a wild animal, it's probably not a good idea to participate because that just perpetuates the idea of wild animals as pets and perpetuates the idea of, of breeding cats for uh for money for monetary purposes when we shouldn't be doing that it's not right it's it goes against their nature it hurts animals in the end and um joe exotic he was one of those people who liked to breed different breeds together like lions and tigers together things like that to create new cats we don't need to be doing that either we need to be working to preserve habitat for the wild animals that we already have and doing what we can to encourage wild animals to remain in the wild. Yeah, not everything has a profit level, you know. Yeah, and not everything should be bent to human wishes either. Unless it's for hilarious purposes. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <sighs> Always trying to go for the joke. That's that's our Tim. <laughs> Would you please stop, Tim? Um, well, we had uh, within the past week here, about a, about a week and a half ago... The final result of the latest induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was oh, announced. Oh, that's right. That's right. Who who are the final results? Go ahead and list them first, and then we'll talk about them one by one. Okay. Well, I, let's just go with, through them one by one here, because oh, okay. I got plenty to say. Now, the, this is going to be the list of people that made it. I will go through a list of the folks that didn't make it and comment on my opinion on why I either so agree or disagree with So how many actually made it? Uh, let's see. Six. Jeez. Six bands. But we're not going to go through their entire history, just general impressions. I think we can make a segment out of this without it being too long <laughs> and boring you. So is that Oh, okay? I am sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Queen Kim has spoken. What? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know what I need is one of those uh, jeweled staffs to bang on the ground after I've finished speaking. That'd be your bad guy wrestler persona. Queen Kim. Queen Kim? Okay. <laughs> sure. I've spoken. <laughs> I have spoken. <laughs> Kiss the ring. Uh, <laughs> Kiss something else. <laughs> My ass. <laughs> okay. There's more merchandise right there. <laughs> anyway. It's an animated picture of you with your butt out. Like, kiss it. <laughs> Kiss it. Kiss it. All right. So, one person I made it. Nine Inch Nails. Okay. I like Nine Inch Nails. I know you're not a huge fan, but I like them. But having said that, I have I have no problem with them being inducted. You know, they deserve that spot. Just because yeah. I'm not a fan does not mean I don't see the contribution they made to uh, music in general, mm-hmm. rock music specifically. Notorious B.I.G. Okay. The, the thing with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is they are, you know, we've talked about this at length. Um both on and off mic 
that they've they've inducted quite a few folks that aren't necessarily rock and roll, but they have influenced music in general, including rock. I would say rap has been a huge influence on rock and roll in general. So there's no reason why you shouldn't include rap artists in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. True. Yeah. And vice versa. I mean, rock and roll influences rap too. It's both. It goes both ways. Yeah. I mean, I I, I believe Run DMC is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Their work with Aerosmith speaks for itself. That that you know, walk this way with Aerosmith and Run DMC together open the doors to rap music to white America and open the doors to rock music to black America. Um, and not, and it, it, that was an important moment in music history uh, for the eighties at least. Um, you know, and like we discussed too, public enemy and NWA. I mean, they yeah. very much follow in the tradition of the protest song, Uh huh. you know, so definitely deserved again, not a fan of notorious B.I.G., uh, I'm, you, not a, I'm not a fan either. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't making music for me. So, you know, but again, you can't deny his impact. And he does have a place in in rock history, in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, Depeche Mode. I love Depeche Mode. Um, a lot of people might dismiss them out of hand as like, synth rock, blah, 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 mopey boys from England. Well, remember- I hate these guys. But remember the example I, I, I gave to you was uh, um, Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top seeing them in concert and being so inspired by their work with the synthesizer in his blues-based format, mm-hmm. he used it on Eliminator. I mean, d- d- give me all your lovin', sharp-dressed man had a synthesizer as a bass, essentially, because of Depeche Mode. That that alone, to me, d- is one reason why they deserve to be in Well, yeah, and, and Depeche Mode, their music has eclipsed just their beginnings as a, as a little I just can't get enough and and put it this way if Johnny Cash can take one of your songs and do a, his interpretation of it similar to Nine Inch Nails I think that's saying something if Johnny Cash himself thinks you're good enough to cover yeah that's a good point um, yeah I don't see any problems with Depeche Mode in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame yeah alright the Doobie Brothers I don't see any problems with that either. I don't. I'm, you know, knowing how the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know, cast their ballots, I, one, am a little shocked that they haven't made it a lot sooner because the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, people that do cast the votes for, for the ultimate finals uh, do tend to favor that that type of music. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I just have a problem with them getting in over Judas Priest, over Motorhead. Uh, over Pat Benatar. Well, maybe those guys will all be next year. Uh, who knows with Judas Priest and Motorhead, and I don't think their uh, in pers- respective band, uh, their, their respective fans really care that much about the Rock, rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, they're and, just like, oh, okay, whatever. They're just like, fuck it, you know, and it's probably the attitude I should have, but I have a podcast to fill, so we're going <laughs> to talk about it. Um, another person, T-Rex. That's... That's cool. Yeah. Again, another another artist that I'm shocked hasn't been inducted earlier because, again, this is the type of music that um, generally the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame com- committee that votes on this stuff actually goes for. And also with, with um, his, you know, I know he was an influence on David Bowie um, and, and a lot of people. So 
I, I can see it. I'm not a huge fan of the music. Um, Bang a Gong is an okay song, but I, even then I prefer the um, Robert Palmer. Um, what's that super group that he did with Duran Duran? Uh, Power Station. Power Station. I, I prefer that. Um, I like the Power cover. Station. I thought they did some good work. Uh, and Robert Palmer. It is a crime that people are that people are really only aware of Addicted to Love. I know how you feel. You've yeah. told me before. <laughs> I'm thinking that Chris Rock joke now. Why don't you go get kidnapped? Then we'll have something new to talk about. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's terrible. I would never want you to get kidnapped. <laughs> I would leave you before then. <laughs> I'm also not going to hire anybody to murder you when I could do it myself. This may be our last episode of Friends Talking <laughs> No, I was just thinking back to Joe Exotic and why he was, like, hiring yeah. someone. I'm like... This will be my show. Isn't that one of those things that you would sort of, you know, isn't that kind of a DIY thing that you'd prefer to do yourself? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> All right, so the sixth entrant, the final entrant, I've been saving the best for last. <laughs> Whitney Houston. Saving the best for last. That's one of her songs. I don't care. <laughs> um... This, I'm going to give my honest opinion. She, you know, she deserves her place in music history. Not a personal fan, didn't care for her work, but you can't deny the impact she had over the years. But she was a pop artist. Yeah. You know, she has no real connection to the rock industry apart from her drug habit, sad to say. It's true. You're, you're, you're singing my song. I mean, I've, I said this before when she got nominated. I was like, "What?" Yeah, I mean, the fact the fact is, Whitney Houston is being nominated simply because they know that her kids on the stage and with her fans being as voluminous as they are will bring the ratings. Bring the ratings, bring some money, all of that stuff. Yeah, and I mean, she's she's influenced a lot of folks, but it's. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's not the Pop Music Hall of Fame. It's not the Soul Music Hall of Fame. Having said that, though, um, you know, someone on Twitter um, brought up uh, other examples. Now, I have no problem with somebody that does is not a primarily a rock artist getting into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But they have to have some reason to be there. Like James Brown, for instance. Yeah. Godfather of Soul. Soul Music. But... Mick Jagger wouldn't be Mick Jagger without James Brown. Mm -hmm. um, Led Zeppelin wouldn't be Led Zeppelin without the influence of James Brown. James Brown, the influence on rock music is definable. He deserves to be in there. Motown acts. We talked uh, during the battle for state supremacy how the Beatles covered a Smokey Robinson song. The Beatles. Mm -hmm. Okay, one of the greatest rock bands of all time. Motown acts deserve to be there. If anybody can definitively give me an answer as to what connection Whitney Houston has to rock and roll music, I will listen with open ears and then make a decision after that. And if, if I agree with you, I will be the first to say so. But Whitney Houston has no connection whatsoever to rock music. That's just a fact. I'd have to agree with you. I don't I don't understand beyond like the the profit. It's a business thing. decision more than anything because also Folks that get uh, get inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, guess what label they get to put on, you know, past releases? 
they're rock and roll hall of fame they're in the rock and roll hall of fame they get to make a little extra money by you know saying they're rock and roll hall of fame it's like with uh, the wwe with their hall of fame you know people that get inducted into there are now able to go to comic conventions or wrestling conventions around the country and yes i found a way to bring wrestling in this week yes um <laughs> But they're able to go around and earn a little bit more money simply because they can officially have that WWE Hall of Famer uh, logo stamped onto their poster. Yeah, I mean, granted that Whitney Houston is no longer with us, um, but there's nothing, you know, that's really preventing her estate from releasing some kind of special edition Hall of Fame greatest hits compilation, or maybe they'll go through whatever library they still have of unreleased material and release a special hall of fame edition of something. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of money making opportunities there. And that's, that's all this, this business decision was, it was a business decision. It wasn't artistic. It wasn't based on merit. And again, to people that may listen to this, that absolutely adore Whitney Houston. I am not knocking her place in overall music history. She left quite the impression, you know, and did a lot for women in music. Yeah. I would argue, though, that she belongs more in the Country Music Hall of Fame. If you're going to take an artist from a different genre and induct them into another genre's hall of music, because I will always love you alone. You know, I mean, covering a Dolly Parton song and taking it to greater heights than Dolly Parton did. Opening people's eyes to the fact that Dolly Parton actually wrote that song most people only really know her from nine to five yeah so which is unfortunate uh, and, Dolly Parton's great and, and and I will always love you that song is one reason why I mean she's you know a great singer and songwriter and uh, this fucking pisses me off <laughs> <laughs> uh, just because like some of the bands that didn't make it Pat Benatar why she should have been there already yeah. I mean, hit me with your best shot, Heartbreaker, two hits alone. Yeah. You know, th- this one was on the fence, but, you know, based on how they voted in the past and, you know, uh, with, with Chaka Khan being involved, uh, you know, Rufus with Chaka Khan, they should already be there. I, I don't get why. Dave Matthews Band, they're a little on the young side. I think they will get there eventually. But I'm kind of surprised they're not there already. If you want to talk about making money there are legions of dave matthews band fans still though with uh, uh, i'm only referring to not uh, i'm only referring to essentially the age of that group compared to some other acts Mm. that are um that are eligible or will be eligible soon Uh, they will get there i have no doubt about that you know i just think it you know they're still very much a viable band they don't have to worry about this compared to other bands but you got motorhead thin lizzy Judas Priest. They need to be there, but again, you can't see him, but he's literally shaking his fist. Metal music is, for the most part, just hard rock or metal has been notoriously ignored by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame since day one. And there are other bands too that they just casually ignore just because they don't happen to like it, like the Monkees. You know, Hall of Fames end up meaning something to people like this means something to me just because you have a passion for that art in general. Mm -hmm. You know, and when you see bands that deserve the accolades of people saying you are one of the best, you deserve to be in this Hall of Icons, get passed over for people that 
are good workers impacted their own genre of music and you know should be respected for their history get inducted before them i'm sorry that that's it's shows that the rock and roll hall of fame still has a long way to go before they you know are able to get back some of the respect they maybe once had at some point wow you had a lot to say about that because fuck them (laughs) (laughs) okay then should we talk about this week's uh recording that we listened to (laughs) yeah we're gonna go from yeah fuck them to a paul simon album (laughs) (laughs) this was tim's choice my choice yes um well it's paul's choice but I put it on the poll. I mean, I, yeah. I put the four choices on. So, you know, this is one I had no problem talking about. Um, this is the first Paul Simon recording I ever heard. You know, like, I mean, that came out when I was in fifth grade, I believe. And um, I remember the, the, when the video for You Can Call Me Al came out. Um, and, like, at the time, uh, the teacher that we had would have, like, journal writing time that the kids had to do. We had to write in a journal to him. And uh, him and I, for whatever reason, started writing in code. You know, the code being, you know, the letter A would be represented by the number one, B, number two, and so on and so forth. And then, you know, we would just write it out in code and then get the response. And then one time I said, I like, you know, the Paul Simon video. You know, you can call me Alan. He goes, I like Paul Simon too. And I'm like, oh my God, I have something in common with my teacher. Oh, you're such a nerd. Yeah. Um, Paul Simon, though, uh, started, I mean, hit the big time with uh, Art Garfunkel in the 60s. and Simon it, and Garfunkel. Yep. And in the late, uh, late 60s, early 70s, um, there was no big heroin addiction. There was no big fight or anything like that. They were just like two people in a relationship that decided they need to be away from each other so they went their separate ways paul simon had a few hit albums until the early 80s yeah i was reading about the history of of this album and he hit a slump and decided to do something different and out of the box to kind of wake himself back up yeah he uh was given um there's a if if you can find it i believe it's on amazon um and there are other places you can find uh, access tv for instance uh there there was a show that um was originally out of england but airs in america at at sometimes called classic albums and they do an entire one-hour documentary on the creation of an album and Mm -hmm. one of the one of the albums they did was graceland and he talked about um how he was given a, a bootleg uh, recording of um, South African music. Um, and he was listening to it constantly because um, he was building a house in New York. And when he would go back and forth to the new property, he would have that uh, cassette in the player listening to it. And he realized that, you know, he really dug it. And he had executives at Warner Brothers kind of do a little digging for him and found out that specifically, yes, they were South African musicians, which in the 80s, was a bit of a controversial thing yeah i was reading about that too because in the 80s south africa was in the grips of apartheid yeah which if you don't know what that is um basically it was a system of government that um put whites in power with laws and regulations and anybody whose skin was not white was less than a citizen basically yeah if you've uh heard trevor noah trevor noah 
um, in any of his stand-up specials. Uh, he grew up in South Africa. His mother was black. His father was white, um, and grew up. You know, his early childhood was during the last days of apartheid. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's um, it was not a good time, and it wasn't the easiest decision to make either because the UN had uh, what they called a cultural ban. Yeah. And basically stating that no artist should um, work in uh, South Africa as long as apartheid was in place. And I can understand why they did that, because they basically didn't want people to financially support a government that was not for all of its citizens. And if you want to know more about this history in South Africa... The, the basic Wikipedia pages are actually pretty well written about this. So those are a good starting point if you want to learn more about apartheid and the history of apartheid. Yeah, uh, it's just the one thing, though, that the UN Cultural Band did not take into account was the impact that art can bring to people. Yeah. Um, you know, I think of the recent controversies with the WWE going to Saudi Arabia. And one former announcer from them, Jim Ross, commented that, you know, he saw no problem with that because it brings a bit of American culture to Saudi Arabia and that can plant a seed for the future. However, with that example, they are that company is being paid directly by the Saudi Arabian government to show up and put on that pay-per-view. And similar to the Olympics when they were in China, the announcers have to say nothing but great things about being in the wonderful kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Yeah. You know, it, the reason I bring that example up is if we are talking about, to, to your point, taking money from a government to perform a concert as a sort of a propaganda tool, I absolutely agree that if we, are, however, are talking about a private institution like uh, in, there was a resort in South Africa called Sun City. There was a famous song in the 80s from uh, Stephen Van Zandt, who was a guitar player for um, Bruce Springsteen in, in the E Street mm-hmm. Band. Um, I, that He had a, a benefit song called I Don't, I Don't Want to Play Sun City. Um, um, I and, read about that, too. Yeah. And if we are talking about a private organization like sun city paying somebody on on a private level to come and play that's i don't necessarily see the problem with that Mm. you know it's still a little touchy because sun city being a resort only whites are going to be yeah that's the problem right there is that it's a whites only resort if it was like an inclusive resort okay so not the best example in my part but if it was my example holds as long as it was an artist being able to show their art to uh, the full audience, not just a segregated audience. Well, if and, it was a segregated audience, then my argument does not stand. Well, and what Paul Simon did, too, is he basically smuggled himself into the country and spent two to, it was like two weeks, three weeks, yeah, kind of in hiding with all of these um, African artists working on the stuff for the album. And I, when I was reading about this, I mean, most of the the musicians didn't have permits to be out after a certain time. Mm-hmm. So they had to arrange, like, private cars to take everybody home and just things like that. And I'm just like, God, that... And that was the 80s. That wasn't, like... That... I can't... I just... It just boggles my mind that that people were still living under that that late in our history. Yeah. It... it well, we have people, just we upsetting. have children in cages now, so. Yeah, and that's upsetting too. It's just, I just, I just get really angry and just sad and the, that 
pit a sort of ball in your stomach that just makes you feel upset. Now you're shaking your fist. <laughs> Damn right. Um, but the beauty, I think, of what Paul Simon uh, uh, did. Now, I, kn- I know some folks in the in the 80s, especially, did say that maybe he was abusing the system because, again, in that culture, the white people have essentially for years upon years told black people that they are subservient. So mm. he was essentially using the musicians and they were not in a position to say no. However, in that same documentary I told you about the classic albums, uh, one member from Ladysmith Black Mombazo, uh, the the vocal group that's featured on a couple uh, tracks on this album here, um, they said, you know, quite the contrary. You know, they used him as much as he used them. They realized that one way to, you know, show, you know, to uh, essentially end apartheid, Mm -hmm. you know, essentially. They didn't say this specifically in the documentary, but in that political time, I think this does fit. One way to show that was to showcase the art of the um, black culture from uh, South Africa. Oh, definitely. That, you know, in art, in song, I mean, we, we were mentioning the protest song earlier it's the same basic thing it's like when you start engaging people with music music is a very easy way to engage people in your cause Mm -hmm. it it gets the word out it gets people to pay attention and i think that's you know i think i don't think that his album was like the end of apartheid or anything like that but i'm sure it it helped it helped to get the message out because even at that time a lot of people in the united states didn't know what it was I mean, I remember this time of in the 80s, and I don't remember the first time I know, learned what apartheid was. I saw some a ban apartheid sticker on somebody's car, and I was like, what is that? And my mom explained it to me. And I was just like, that's terrible. And immediately that was like, I'm like, I'm so I'm anti-apartheid. I started, to, I started talking about it to everybody I knew. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would hope you would be. <laughs> that would be kind of awkward finding that out now. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it'd be kind of awkward. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait. But I just, I, it, it just blew my mind even. It blows my mind now and it blew my mind then that there would be a, a place in the world, you know, being that I'm living in the United States, where you were basically just being judged only on the color of your skin and not by your actions. And that's always bothered me when people do that. You don't judge people like that you just don't yeah it's not right and speaking to paul simon's you know decision to go to south africa to record i mean he didn't really if he wanted to work with these musicians he didn't really have a choice he couldn't bring them here no he ultimately did he was able uh because the initial recordings yes were in south africa but then um for other songs on the album uh it was recorded in in new york and he was able to get those musicians to um fly over to new york to record and was able to not only get them triple the rate um a comparable united states based musician Mm -hmm. would get to be in that recording um he ended up giving um ones that actually that contributed to the songwriting credit yeah that's right i did read about that however he got Los Lobos to help on one of the tracks. Yeah, and we'll get to that. We'll get, we'll to, get that to that when we get to that yeah. particular song here. But like we do, we're going to go through the album track by track here. Um, we're going to give our honest opinions. So there may be songs we like. There may be songs that we don't like. But, you know, for me, um, this is one of my favorite albums. One I can always put on and from start to finish. 
you know, enjoy. So. Okay. I'm right. glad you feel that way. But that's the beauty of what we're doing too. Right? <laughs> I, 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 I encourage, I like it when healthy conversation about, you know, why I like something and why I don't is, is able to be had. I mean, and there's one podcast and we'll go a little more in depth on podcasts that we like on a future episode, but there was one um, called your favorite band sucks. Oh, I love that one. Yeah, she sent me a link to one that they did about the Who without, <laughs> without telling me the premise of what these guys do. No, because not telling you the premise would have ruined the whole thing. Yeah, because what they do on that show is they go with every contrary argument for why a band is good to turn it into why they are bad it makes uh, you think more critically yeah it like like for <laughs> the who they said that they were a ripoff of the kings they said that limp biscuit was better um yeah and by that point i i got what what was happening but it took me a little bit so <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's a kick i've i listened to their beatles episode and that was a little hard I'm currently listening to the Stone Temple Pilots episode, and uh, I pretty much agree with everything they say, because I think the Stone Temple Pilots aren't that great. There's a couple songs that I'm kind of like, eh, but they just sound like Pearl Jam to me. Uh, yeah, I mean, I get that. I mean, I uh, they're more of a greatest hits band for me. Yeah, exactly. But... We're not talking about them right now. Yeah. We're talking about this album. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, first track in the album, The Boy in the Bubble. What'd you think? Okay, all right. So the the intro to this song, it's just kind of disjointed. It just sounds kind of chaotic, and then it sort of settles into a rhythm. Mm -hmm. And that disjointed intro, I kind of wanted to just skip immediately. It just was kind of an assault. You didn't like the accordion? I like the accordion. Or is it the drum that... I don't like accordions that are like... Like Morrissey. <laughs> I'm going to punch you one of these days. It's going to hurt. I'm going to break your glasses. No. Um, no, it's not that I don't like the accordion, because the accordion, I can... I like I like accordion sounds. I mean, I, I went for Weird Al last week. Yeah. So it's not that I don't like accordion. I do. Messing with you on that one. But. <laughs> I I do like accordion. It's just that I didn't like the way that the song started. It's like the first, like ten to fifteen seconds is just really kind of disjointed, and then it it's kind of like when you're warming up. It sounded like the accordion was kind of the whoever was playing was kind of like warming up, and they just recorded it, and it was like, oh, let's go with it. Well, they talked about in the classic albums documentary that um, Roy Halley, the producer on the album, talked about. The South African uh, sessions were more just nine times out of ten jam sessions where yeah. the entire band was in one room looking at each other, body language indicating, you know, what to do next and just jamming. And, and that's cool and, and but everything. What but... they would do is take those South African recordings when they brought them back to New York is like like in one case isolate an accordion bit in another case isolate a guitar bit and then maybe add a little something else to spice up that recording so to your point this is probably one of those instances where the new york and south african sessions were kind of mishmashed together and probably not so perfect the way in your opinion yeah it's just the it, and it wasn't the rest of the song was okay it's just this beginning part of the song it was just like uh, 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 my ears I'm like, uh, is it going to get better? Oh, okay, I guess it is a little better now. It's okay. just, it was kind of like when you're listening to, to a band tune up and you're just like, oh, that's painful. That's not right. And then they get it right. And you're like, okay, that's all right. 
Ladies and gentlemen, the Goo Goo Dolls. No. Oh. <laughs> anyway. Um, the, the notes I had. Um, Boy in the Bubble, I don't mind the song. I think it's pretty good. Um, I think it was a nice way to open the album. Uh, it's not too overpowering or anything like that. Um, it's not like what the Rolling Stones would do and have something like Start Me Up be the first track on the album. <laughs> um, it's... Yeah, that's called peaking high and then not finishing. That's just that's yeah. most men. Hey, 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 you gonna say that? That's true. Shut up. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, the accordion I thought was inappropriate level. I, th I thought the accordion actually added to the song for me. Um, I did make a comment about the amount of lyrics that Paul Simon has because similar to other artists that we've featured on the show um, he is from a folk rock tradition and um, or folk music tra tradition as well that where the songwriter singer is part part of the tool and and you know some some of those songwriters were like the Eddie Van Halen of songwriters and Paul Simon was essentially one of them in terms of being able to put a lot of words into a song for this album I did not mind I think it flowed well and I think the lyrics kind of even if you don't necessarily pay attention to the lyrics they're not overpowering it's the right type of vocals it's delivered the right way that contributes to the song I don't know there was I I guess I'm I'm more literal than a lot of folks but when the song is called the boy in the bubble I thought it was actually going to be about the boy in the bubble well they mentioned the boy in the bubble and the baby with a baboon heart and I believe yeah it's just I you, don't know. you wanted <laughs> I wanted it to be about that movie with John Travolta in it that started him on the path to Scientology. Um, yeah, sure, why not? Yeah, um, I forgot to mention that the base uh, of the song and the base of the, on the entire album, uh, the base work, if it made me noticed, it was really good. Um, and I liked the kind of harmonizing at the end, the ooh, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not Paul Simon. So that's... <laughs> All right, uh, the next song on the album is the title track, Graceland. This is a good, I like this song because it sounds like it's a good driving song. It's just, it just kind of bubbles along like da 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 da. And it's kind of a relief on the ears after the disjointed accordion at the beginning <laughs> of the previous track. Um, there's an article that I read that I cannot find for the life of me. I was looking for it before we started recording. Um, it was the story that this guy wrote about going about listening to this album with his kid and finally going on a road trip to Graceland as a result. It was a really sweet article. I just can't remember where I read it and I can't remember who wrote it. And so I tried to Google like, you know, Graceland article, blah, blah, blah. And I just got like a whole bunch of like travel reviews to the actual Graceland and I'm like, okay, I, I tried a whole bunch of different search options. So if like anyone is listening and knows which article I'm referring to, link it on like our twitter or something but yeah okay I, I i like this song it's a good road trip song uh th this is one of the best songs on the album i like it too um part of the song actually details uh the the his emotions about his marriage to carrie fisher ending yeah yeah yeah, Carrie Fisher was a big fan of the Saturday Night Live group because <laughs> for a while uh, during the filming of the Blues Brothers, her and Dan Aykroyd dated. Um, she was married to Paul Simon, so... <laughs> 
Carrie has I love Carrie Fisher. I do. She she had her issues. But she was open about it. She was human about it, mm-hmm. you know, and she encouraged other people to be open and human about it because that is the only way we're going to break out of the bones that, you know, mental illness put on us. Mental illness, drug addiction, all that stuff. And a lot of people who have mental illnesses that aren't uh, properly uh, treated, they tend to be addicted to drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Because it's a way to keep keep things quiet in your head or at least you think yeah shut up pretty much pretty much um now on the song i did like that the um the the two people that provided the backing vocals on the song were the everly brothers sorry really so bored yeah no i'm not bored sorry i'm just i took a nap before we started recording and i'm still coming back from that so yeah the everly brothers provided the backing vocals on graceland um you know that without the everly brothers there would have been no simon and garfunkel i mean they'd be the first to admit that so this is paul simon essentially getting to sing a song with his heroes um another thing i really liked about the song and you can say that for pretty much the entire album is the song and the album overall does have a this weird mixture of familiarity and uniqueness blend it together it's familiar but just different enough to make you appreciate that you know this the music itself not the lyrics were um created by musicians from another culture with a different worldview with a different Mm -hmm. you know point in my point but their interpretation of what makes music from the 50s and 60s was and it's it's amazing to hear stuff like that yeah and i like world music in general which is what a lot of people classify the South African parts of this album as, like just general world music. And I actually remember um, checking out from the library a cassette of South African musicians in the late 80s mm-hmm. and just listening to that over and over, just going, wow, this is really interesting. Just the drumming and the singing. And um, yeah, I really did appreciate those parts of the album. It's not on this song in particular. But just in general, I, I liked the mix of the the different and the... Um, and the same. And the same. Yep. Yeah. But then that brings up another question that I was going to bring up more on another track, um, which is cultural appropriation. Well... Is he exploiting, you know, African music to make a buck? Is he trying yeah. to make it his own and and not give credit where credit is due that sort of thing i don't know i don't i don't don't think it's that at all i mean because he he, to this day he he still tours with uh lady smith black mombazo um -hmm. and you know his you know their work with him on graceland got them american record deals they're still touring today as well yeah so in terms of stealing it and claiming it for his own no but there is an argument too that you know who made the most money off of graceland Paul Simon. Paul Simon. You know, and uh, there is, I mean, while while his career was in a slump before Graceland occurred, you know, he was still appearing regularly on Saturday Night Live. You know, he still would have, he would, if Graceland never occurred, he'd still show up on Saturday Night Live because of his history um, up to that point. He was not at a point to where he desperately needed to release an album. In fact, the documentary talked about that this was the first album that he really actively wasn't looking to write a hit. 
-hmm. He just wanted to make music that impressed him. So I think it's, there is no black and white here. I think there is definitely part of it where, yeah, he did, you know, make money off of other people's work. However, those people in question will, from interviews I've heard, thank him for that because he still, he made every effort to do what, the Beatles did to do what the Rolling Stones did and that's you know tell their audience that if you like this song go buy their work mm -hmm. you know so it's it's not a perfect answer but I think overall you know he did a good thing for this album okay let's go so, on to the next track all right I know what I know what do you think oh so I was enjoying it and then the background vocals got super high-pitched and frantic and at the end, I'm just like, stop. I was just literally, it was just, it was making me feel anxious just listening to it. And I skipped the track the next, because I usually listen to the album about three or four times mm -hmm. before the show, just so I feel like I've got a good grasp on what it sounded like. And yeah, I had to skip that track and just, just like, oh my God, stop. Oh, I do admit, I I mean, ahead of my notes that uh, this is one of the weaker tracks on the album, but it for me it's still a fun listen. It's, um, uh, too high pitched. Bass work was great. I love the guitar work. Um, yeah, basically, if you'd left out the vocals, it would have been great. I, I did like the backup singers though. I know what I know. Da, da, yeah, but the only got so loud and screechy. I was just like, ah. Well, that that may be another instance of of the New York and South Africa tracks being mixed in a way that didn't please your ears. Probably they did not please my ears. That's for sure. Okay. No, no, your pleasure here. All right. <laughs> Thinking of that picture that Lisa put up on my Facebook. Page. Oh, jeez. Anyway, yeah. um, the next track, Gumboots. Thoughts. Um. The accordion was a little too frantic. That's what I wrote. It was frantic accordion. It, the, there were parts where it was just, it was, it goes it was those high pitched voices on the first and the track before it, and then you get this frantic accordion. It was just really anxiety inducing. There's certain sounds for me that induce anxiety, and really high pitched sounds that are really just really rapid they it bugs me it bugs me on a really deep primal level and i just oh i just don't want to listen to it i just I'm like no yeah, no <laughs> stop <laughs> well my thoughts i mean one of the lyrics i really love from the song is why don't we get together and call each other an institute <laughs> um i mean lyrically it's paul simon having a lot of fun here um, and I think, too, he's commented that, you know, and I've heard other artists talk, other songwriters talk about this, like David Bowie, for instance, how, and also Phil Collins, uh, where they talk about they're, they don't necessarily write songs the way people think they do in terms of taking a pad and paper and then writing mm -hmm. it out. It's more creating the music and then finding something lyrically that kind of fits it. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways to write a song. I mean, some people will just, they'll write, like, poetry and then they'll then they'll come up with music that goes with it. Mm -hmm. Some people will um, just write a bunch of music and then just start humming along, and then the lyrics come. There's uh, as many ways to write a song as there are to like write write a sentence, write a novel for yeah. that matter. Some some writers will write in bits and pieces. They'll just write scenes and then they'll stitch them together. 
and some will just sit down and just write from start to finish. It just depends. It's everybody does it differently. Whatever works for you. Yeah. Um, but this this is one of those times where you can kind of feel that he's just throwing stuff at the wall and, and seeing if it fits. And this and in this case, I think it did. I, I think it is one of the weaker uh, tracks on the album. But for me, I liked the persistence, uh, the, the persistence of the song. You know, you you got oh. bouncing so. Let's move on to the next one before we have an anxiety attack. No more frantic accordion, please. <laughs> All right. Diamonds on the soles of her shoes. Okay, this song... Okay. So, there was part of me that was, like, enjoying it, and then part of me that was, like, this is a really poorly told fable. Because when you hear the song, and you and if you actually go and read the lyrics like I did, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, so there's one of those kind of standard sort of fables you know the rich person and the poor person they fall in love and and there's always something ridiculous thrown in and just i don't know there was something about it i just didn't like i mean it, it a lot of what this comes down to for a lot for me on if it's it's usually either the lyrics or the music and that's true of most people when it comes to critiquing songs but for me it was the lyrics definitely on this song it was just like diamonds on the soles of your shoes even like I, I've like heard about ridiculous things that rich people do, like really rich people do. And I don't think I've heard of anybody doing this. So I know it's like a, it's like a parable or something. There's some reason for it and it symbolizes something, but I'm just, I just, I don't know. I just didn't really like it. For me, I, you know, I did have in my notes that I think the lyrics were the weak part of the song. Um, but for me, this is an instance to where the actual music itself was able to mask that, Mm. you know, and, uh, you, you know, for me, this is almost too like the Star Wars prequels. And what do I mean by that? Star Wars prequels were not the best films, but when you have John Williams at his absolute best putting out some of his most brilliant work, uh, you're still going to find ways to enjoy it. And I I think in this case, when it comes to the music, as well as uh, Lady Smith Black Mombazo's performance in the song, Paul Simon's weaknesses were, were for me, masked. Eh, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. There was just something about it that bugged me. And I kept thinking, like, in terms of practical reasons. So I'm like, if you need traction, I can think of other things that I'd rather have on the soles of my shoes than diamonds. That's not going to be very comfortable to walk on either. Just just get some Nikes or some good hiking boots. It'll cost just as much. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> All right. Um, the next song. <laughs> the first big hit of the album, You Can Call Me Out. Everyone's heard this song a lot. Of, I don't think it's a bad song. I've just heard it. So way many too many times. times yeah way too many times that's the legacy of soft rock radio yeah this not much uh, there's not much that can be said about this this i think is the most american of the songs oh yeah it's very american yeah it's like hey let's throw in some horns woo yeah, i mean the video was, america the video was pretty damn brilliant i mean i resisted it for the longest time because i didn't like chevy chase for the longest time <laughs> But once you get Chevy Chase, then you can get this video, and it it was great. Where you think Paul Simon's going to start singing, and then Chevy Chase does, and then he's just being the jackass that people love. Um, great bass work on the song. The, I love the horns. It's just a good song. To Kim's point, I can get folks that don't necessarily want to hear it just because of how much it's been played. Yeah, that's really what it comes down to. Is it's just 
it's a lot like when we were talking about Beatles Abbey Road and I was like yeah it's a great song I've just heard it too many times yeah all right next track on the album Under African Skies what you think um I didn't make any comments but this is the one with Linda Ronstadt's vocals right yeah I don't know her vocals just didn't sound right with it for me I I if there was going to be somebody singing a backup track on this, I want them to sound less white. <laughs> I guess is what it comes down to. More, I like Linda Ronstadt. I do. Mm-hmm. I just don't like her on this song. She was also a controversial addition yeah, to the she album. She was very controversial because she did perform at uh, what was it called? Sun, Sun City. City. Yeah. yeah, the Whites Only Resort. Bad move, Linda bad move yeah um she's a great singer i liked her addition to the song it did have a beatlesque ending um but it's not a classic it's you know i I don't think her vocals were appropriate for it both like in terms of her position by playing at sun city and just the way her voice sounds they should have had someone who had a more what's the word i'm looking for because there's a certain tone to some voices, like they're as James they're Earl Jones just as or... James Earl Jones described it uh, um, with his voice, uh, wanting a darker tone in terms of bass, just, bass yeah, tone. just more like just a deeper, richer vocal. Because hers, I think of her voice as like glass and like sort of transparent, and it's clear, mm-hmm. it's glass. You needed something that was more molassesy, something a little darker and richer and tina turner sticky sure tina turner would have been a good choice actually Hmm. okay all right um the next track homeless this is the track where i felt like cultural appropriation might be in play because of the fact that it had it had the lady smith black mambazo singers and doing their doing songs in um I think they were singing either it wasn't Afrikaans, but it it would think it was Zulu. Yeah. Um. So they were singing, and then all of a sudden, here's Paul Simon's white voice coming in with English lyrics, and that's just like, eh. it just it made me feel a little uncomfortable. I'm like, so it it just made me kind of picture in my head. There's all these black singers sitting around making this gorgeous soundscape. With their voices and instruments. And then Paul Simon shows up. Yeah, and then, hey, can I play too? And he just starts throwing in words and they're like, well, okay. You know, <laughs> I guess we have to let him play. Yeah, I did put in my notes that this is the one song in a Paul Simon album that could have done without Paul Simon. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, he was he was not necessary for this song to work. They could have just he could have just maybe maybe put the song on and not sung on it, maybe just played instruments and just credited to all the vocals to them and it's not like he's done that before i mean in um there's a simon and garfunkel album old friends a few of those tracks um end up being like instrumental soundscape type deals so he could have easily done something like that on this album yeah if he had just like maybe closed his mouth and let the other folks (laughs) sing do their jobs yeah 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 if you just played like you know guitar or something on this song and just let let lady smith black mombazo do their thing Yep. It would have been better. All right, the next track, Crazy Love, Volume 2. I didn't really make any comments on this. I just... 
Well, the reason that he called it volume two is, I guess, there he didn't um, realize until almost uh, when the album was published or at some point beforehand of the Van, there was a Van Morrison song called Crazy Love. So they put the volume, he only added the volume two on to kind of differentiate it uh, in people's minds. It sound it's not bad. It's forgettable, but it sounds like it could have been on his previous album, Hearts and Bones. It doesn't feel, this is another one of those American songs, Mm -hmm. if if that makes sense. It feels, it it does not feel right on this album. Yeah, I was just kind of like, okay, whatever. Okay. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't really, if I didn't write anything down about it, it just generally means that I was like, all right. Yeah. Meh. 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 All right, the next track, That Was Your Mother. Okay. I like the Zydeco. I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I'm saying that word right. I always thought it was Zydeco. Zydeco? Zydeco? Whatever. I like I like this song musically. The lyrics, though, the, the line, you are the burden of my generation, is basically talking about how the, his kid is a mistake. <laughs> this is how I met your mom. Met your mom here. And you're the burden of my generation. I still love you anyway. Basically, telling the child that they're a mistake. And I don't know if this is like a true song, true story kind of song or what, but I did not like that. You never tell a child that they're a mistake. Never. That's just setting them up for years of friggin' therapy. That's what I gotta say about this song. All right. Um, I, I like the music part. Um, uh, another another track here. I mean, again, if this had been an instrumental or had different different lyrics or a different vocalist, maybe it could have been a little bit uh, better. Um, the the lyrics, I didn't focus too much on it, so I didn't catch what you caught there. Um, but yeah, it, it's forgettable. But the music is worth the price of admission. Yeah, the music is great. I like yeah. the music a lot. Um, it makes me kind of want to dance and like eat something spicy, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah, the lyrics, I'm like, okay, so he's talking about, you know, going to town and looking for, looking for a lady, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden it's the, he's talking to the kid that he had with this lady on the road and how they were a mistake And it. Oh, it bugged me. It really bugged me. Fuck you, Paul Simon. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) All right. The last track on the album. Uh, we hinted to this uh, when when we started Mm-mm. here. All Around the World or The Myth of Fingerprints? You know, I'm listening to this and it doesn't have that Los Lobos sound that I like. Because Los Lobos worked with him on this song. And then it turns out he didn't give them songwriting credit and they had to sue him. What a dick. Yeah. It's a dick move, Paul Simon. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the specifics. I did hear uh, Los Lobos' version. I have not uh, done enough research or cared that much um, to hear uh, his his side uh, of the story as well. Now, um, there is no his side of the story. They came into the studio, worked with him on this song, they wrote it together, and he didn't give them songwriting credit. That's all that needs to be said. Yeah, not not a cool move. I mean, if he was under the impression that it was going to be a different type of arrangement, then he should have had that written down in a contract. Yeah, that's... Yeah. Yeah. You know, so as far as that, the song itself, it sticks out like a sore, sore thumb because what I... For me, if... 
it's like we mentioned on um, albums like Under the Gun. Um, this is one thing to where I think if you switched this with maybe Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes, it may have ended a lot better for me. But on the flip side, this album does kind of plant the seeds for his next album, The Rhythm of the Saints, uh, which was a, a still kind of a world music theme, but based more in Central and South American uh, uh, musical influences but you were going to say something for no I, th- I just think that maybe he should have just left this off the album altogether because if you're if you're going to work with Los Lobos and you're not going to you're not going to make it sound like it came from Central America because this song's just kind of bland I mean I was yeah I was just listening for like the sort of flamenco-y guitar that a lot of Los Lobos's music has and I'm just like where's the guitar this doesn't even sound like Los Lobos yeah. it just was kind of like well, if you're going to work with them, why are you not going to use the best things that they're good at in your songs? Their style. I mean... Yeah, their style. I mean, yeah. When David Bowie uh, worked with Stevie Ray Vaughan, what did he do? Had him do a guitar solo. You know, it's not like yeah. he was going to tell him to play the horns. Yeah, exactly. It's It, it was just kind of disappointing because I like Los Lobos. I like the way they their sound. And most of that is because they do that sort of flamenco-y guitar and it's kind of kind of groovy and kind of fun and and it's it's nice to listen to and even the slower songs that los lobos does they're fun to listen to they actually um antonio banderas did the did the vocals for the song but they did the opening theme song to uh the robert rodriguez movie desperado of course they did which was part two of the mariachi trilogy and they're freaking awesome yeah and yeah i was i was disappointed with this song it was just like it says it's with Los Lobos, and I'm just like, this doesn't even sound remotely... Maybe Los was there, but not Latin. Lobos. Yeah, it was like they're missing <laughs> half of it. It's just... Yeah. It was well, it was a loss altogether. It's just not a good song. All right. Graceland, final thoughts. You know, it has its problems, but overall it's not, it's not bad. It's just... It's just inconsistent. I like the world music influences. I've always liked world music and African drums and the sounds and the voices and it's it's I found those parts very interesting I just it just was kind of I guess if I really want to listen to those sounds and that music I'll go and actually buy a Ladysmith Black Mombazo album or something like that and just listen to the source material but he should also be thanked for making sure that we were introduced to Lady Smith Black Mombasa. And I think the, that's true. I think the importance of what he did is on the same level of what the Rolling Stones did for artists like John Lee Hooker for Muddy Waters, you know, um, acknowledging their influence on his work and also doing his best to uh, get them record deals, bring them on tour with them, uh, t- type of deal, and introduce the world, uh, a part of the world that ne- would not necessarily go out of their way to find that music to it. Yeah, and that is that is a good point. That is the good thing about this album that it that it does that. Yeah, it's um, it's not a perfect legacy because again, as as we talked about earlier when we were talking about appropriation, at the end of the day, who made the most money? Paul Simon did, uh-huh. and that's you know making money off of the hard work of. Um, um, you know non-white artists non-white artists who were in an oppressed citizens in an oppressive regime mm-hmm. you know um so it's not 
perfect on his part. It's not a direct correlation, as direct of a correlation as the example I brought of the Rolling Stones acknowledging Muddy Waters or something mm -hmm. like that. Uh, but there are still some major similarities between the two, of course. Um, but overall, very good album, um, you know, and, you know, for what it did to make the world a smaller place, I think it deserves its spot as one of uh, one of history's great works of uh, music. I don't know if I would go quite that far. I'll say that I enjoyed it more than I expected to, and um, I might listen to it again. All right. Which, for most of my work, is actually pretty high praise. That is actually pretty <laughs> high praise. A lot of what Tim cho chooses is stuff that I don't really care for. Yeah, but... it, I, I love how it's Paul Simon and Motorhead. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I, we did we did agree on a lot of the Motorhead, but uh, yeah, you know, it is what it is. It's what makes uh, life interesting. And it's what makes this podcast interesting, I hope. Yep. To you listeners. All right. So next time will be your choice. It is my uh, choice. You did talk about wanting to put a poll up, but you told me that um, you will do that for your next choice. I'll do that for my next choice because I thought about doing it and then I didn't do it. So I, and, and I, <laughs> I didn't think have enough time. If I had to speculate, I think this choice may be a little bit uh, retaliation for Cannibal the Musical. No, no, it's not actually. Or the Morrissey impression. Um, maybe that. <laughs> what is no, it? It's gonna be. Never mind the Bullocks. Here's the Sex Pistols. Buy oh, the Sex Pistols. God. I was like, Whew. I want to pick something that's prior to the '80s because this came out, I think, in '77. '76, '77, yeah. Somewhere around there, and. This band has had a huge influence on a lot of rock music that has followed. And I I was listening to it for, you know, I hadn't listened to it in a while. I was listening to it a couple of weeks ago while I was at work just to wake myself up. I was like, I really should choose this for one of the things that I do on the podcast as I'm like singing along to myself and bobbing my head. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to have to pick this one. This is one of my favorites. This, this oh. is one of those albums that like... Uh, influenced my music taste for sure thank god what this would be a great choice oh my goodness it, I, really i love this album oh okay yeah. well cool then we'll have a fun discussion for next time yeah and i can talk about one of the uh, bootlegs of I, it was either a bootleg no it may it may have been on the soundtrack for the great rock and roll swindle um, but it was a cover of Johnny Be Good that the Sex Pistols did that just Johnny Rotten gave up in the middle of the song and then started yelling at the other bandmates, Stop playing the fucking song! I don't want to sing this fucking song! <laughs> That's very punk. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and then, of course, we can talk about the Sex Pistols when they were on Judge Judy. Oh, they were what? They were on Judge Judy. Um they reunited uh, the original well, don't band. Don't tell it now. We'll tell it. Tell it next, save it for next week. Well, they were on Judge Judy. And Johnny Rotten also supports Donald Trump. So. Oh. Well, that sucks. Yeah. But, yeah. Anyway, we will talk about that next week. Um, what? Oh, yeah. Um, speaking of uh, Cannibal the Musical, it was really kick-ass and amazing um, when... I posted up on Twitter the uh, link for our bonus episode for our review of Cannibal the Musical. Um, I linked uh, the, the tr at Team is the mm -hmm. Twitter handle for Trauma Films, and they retweeted it and liked it. Oh, 
hooray that's really cool yeah trauma studios uh you know i'm not going to lie and say that every single film they put out is easy to watch (laughs) (laughs) you know it's it's you got to be in the right mood for some of their films but the reason I love that company to death and love their um, the, love their leader uh, Lloyd Kaufman is how they encourage everybody to just give everything to their art, even if it's something silly. There's nothing wrong with that, you know. And uh, yeah. the world needs silly stuff. We need silly, but we also need people that are just giving their all in their art without necessarily worrying about making, you know, a billion dollars for their movie. Yep. You know, it's it's because at the end of the day, an artist is an artist, whether you're making money off your art or not. It's true. And um, that the that type of passion should be celebrated, not the fact that you know this director made a billion dollars for this movie or or just something that doesn't really have any it why do people care about box office reports when they shouldn't because it one it turns films into a competition when people should just want to watch movies yeah imagine that and two you're celebrating companies earning money how does that benefit you that disney had um you know like six or seven or eight movies reach a billion dollars it doesn't affect anybody and it doesn't mean those movies are necessarily the greatest in the world yeah you know and you gotta consumers of the arts especially in america have to go out of their way to support the you know the local artist passion over profit Exactly. Otherwise, you're gonna get transformers all day long, or you're gonna get, <laughs> or you're gonna get cats all day long. Oh God! You know, and part of me wants to see that train wreck, but I'm not gonna pay for it. I'll wait till it's available for free on one of the streaming services. <laughs> well, I mean, technically, you're paying for it on a, on a streaming. service. Yeah, I know, but... but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm already paying for the streaming service. It doesn't matter which bits I choose to watch. Yeah, and at that point, it's probably like six cents would go to it. So. I think I can spare six cents. Okay. Even with Taylor Swift as a kitty. Kitty? Kitty, yeah. I like kitties. Well, no, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I had downtown. Um, all right. I think we're done. I think we're done. Next week, Next never mind week. the bollocks, here's the Sex Pistols. Yay for Sex Pistols, whatever a Sex Pistol is. I'm pretty sure that means penis. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what do you think the bullets are? (laughs) Sperm! (laughs) Okay. I think we're done for now. (laughs) Well, I'm thinking of that movie Orgasmo. um, Oh, jeez. Trey Parker and Matt Stone's second movie, (laughs) where um, Chota Boy, um, (laughs) the Robin of the group, made this uh, device that, um, you know, shot a beam out and gave people, like, the most intense orgasm in the world. And then, like, there was a guy at the end, the villain of the movie, that they just kept on doing it and kept on doing it. And he ended up becoming, um, doing, like, an homage to Jack Nicholson's reveal of the Joker in in Batman. You know, not necessarily reveal, but the first time the Joker realizes he's the Joker, like, mirror, mirror, that scene. Okay. Anyway. Um... Tim's on a tangent again. Yeah, imagine that. See you next week. See you next week. And remember... It's such a good feeling to know you're alive. It's such a happy feeling. You're growing inside. And when you wake up ready to say, I think I'll make a snappy new day.
It's such a good feeling, a very good feeling, the feeling you know that I'll be back when the day is new and I'll have more ideas for you and you'll have things you'll want to talk about. I will too. You always make each day such a special day. You know how, by just your being you. Only one person in the whole world like you. That's you yourself. I'll be back next time. Bye-bye. Subscribe to Friends Talking Nerdy on iTunes, the Google Play Music Store, as well as Spotify. Remember to support Friends Talking Nerdy on Patreon. Goodbye, darling.